This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, a pastor at Grace Church. If you can, grab your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy, which is a pastoral epistle of Paul. It's in the back of your New Testament of your Bible. Happy Mother's Day. I, I do hope and trust that uh, where it applies that you've made Mother's Day plans, you're planning on calling the mom and the grandma or the grandmas or the moms and uh, that you're planning some dinner and uh, uh, where that applies and stuff like that. And if you, if you haven't, you probably want to go outside of Frisco because Frisco is the land of shopping and restaurants. So everything is going to be booked up today, probably. So uh, how are you guys doing this morning? Pretty good? Great. All right. Second um, Timothy chapter 1. I want to warn you on a day of celebration and a day where we ought to be jumping the waves of celebration. And if you are a son, you need to be rising up today. And like Proverbs 31 says, uh, rise up and call your mother blessed uh, because she put up with you for 15 years, 30 years, 40 years, she's, she's still putting up with you. So we need to rise up and call our moms blessed. And there's a day of celebrating. We ought to be celebrating on a day like this. However, uh, a warning, a caveat. Uh, just like uh, when you go to the beach and you jump waves and you're having a good time, sometimes they put red flags out on the beach and it just serves as a warning. And sometimes that warning is that there's an undertow. And there's an undertow on days like today. So I just want to give you a warning. The, the red flags are out. On days like today, there's an undertow of fear that can strike us in several different ways. On days like Mother's Day, days like Father's Day, things like that where, where we're looking at our lives and kind of evaluating some things. Here, here's some questions that you might be asking that might fuel some fear in you on a day like today. You might come in here today and amidst the celebration ask the question, am I a good enough mom? And you struggle with how do I even qualify that? What is good enough? You might ask the question, will things ever change? Will things ever change in my kids? Will things ever change in my teenagers? Will things ever change in my two-year-old? Will things ever change in me? Maybe you're asking, am I ruining my kids by things that I'm doing? By things that I'm saying, by things that I'm not doing, by things that I'm not saying, are, are they going to be ruined? Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? What would other people think if they knew what I am in private? The kind of mom that I am behind closed doors. Will I ever erase this failure that I have done, that I have committed? A failure of, of doing something or a failure to do something? Or can I ever erase the memory of what was done to me by my mother? Can that ever go away? Or, in our case, for several years, will I ever be a mom or a dad? Can I ever have a, a day of celebrating? Can I stand up and get the carnation? 
when can I do that? Am I becoming like my mom? For better or for worse, you might be asking that question. Some of us do need to be like our moms. You might be afraid. I want to say that there is freedom from fear today. And that's why we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because this is a personal letter from Paul to his young disciple Timothy. And the reason why Paul is addressing a personal letter to Timothy is because Timothy is struggling with fear. Look at verse 6. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Here's a young man, a a, a disciple, a leader in the church of Ephesus that Paul is writing to, to help him with his fears. And so Timothy is not not unlike us today. Timothy is a, a man that's struggling with timidity and fear and anxiety. And things are hitting him at, at different, uh, in different ways. And, and fear is, is attempting to cripple him. And just like a day like today, fear can, can cripple you. You can be coming in here and the undertow can flip you around. You ever experience undertow for the first time? It's kind of one of those things where, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. It actually sounds like a lot of fun until you, you stop thinking about it and it flips you around. And that's what can happen today. Amidst the celebration, you can get flipped around and not be able to find your footing and find a place to stand. So there is freedom, but here's what I I don't want us to point to. I don't want to stand up here today and say your freedom from fear is found in your promises and in your dedications and in your resolutions. Like if I just, if I walk away today and I get alone by myself and I just make enough promises to myself, if I get with my kids today and I just say, I promise I'm, I'm going to be a better mom, I'm going to be a better dad, I'm not going to say that thing to you again, I'm not going to do that again, I, 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 I promise. Now that might be fueled from faith, but you can approach that kind of thing and just, it just be resolution, it just be dedication, it just be another act of your efforts to bring change. So I don't want to point you to your promises. I don't want to point you to your dedications. I dedicate myself, God. I dedicate this Mother's Day to you. 2010 is not going to look like 2009. I resolve God. I promise you, God. I don't want to point you to that. I don't want to point you to methodology because we're a culture that's addicted to methodology. We're a culture that's addicted to technique. If we can just find it, Find the book, find the how-to manual, and then if we can somehow just, just do that technique, then our problems go away. And parenting is an approach like that. Just give me the how-to manual on parenting. Show me how and what I should do regarding my kids, and I'll do it, and everything will go right for me. I don't want to point you to technique. And I don't want to point you to comparison. Because you could come here today, and you could be tempted to Look around, maybe even to the people who you're closest to, the people who you love, people that are in your small group, your care group. And you could be tempted to size yourself up to them. And it could work both ways. You know, you could, you could look at what's going on in their life and, and be tempted. That's not happening here. That kind of fruit's not happening in my life. It's ha- ha- not happening in my parenting. 
uh, or, or you could be the other way around. These things are happening, and I'm somehow better than they are. You could have a thought like that. That's a snake that'll bite you on the other direction. So what I want to point you to is what Paul points Timothy to in chapter 1. And I don't, I don't want to sneak it in sideways. I don't want to have, you know, build this up and there it is. I want us to say it right out from the gate that what Paul points Timothy to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he points Timothy to is Jesus and that's what I want to do. I want to stand here and I want to preach to you Jesus. And, and, and what's, what's unique about this situation for me personally is because everybody in the world is crying out to you that there's freedom from fear in this and there's freedom from fear in this and there's pop psychology saying there's freedom from fear in this and in this technique and in this guru. And, and, and so what, what right do I have to actually stand before you with all of your fears? And there could be fears not just of being of a Mother's Day kind of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff we're bringing in here. So how can I stand here and say, I've got the solution for you. I, I've got the truth. I know the solution for your freedom from fear. But I am going to say it. And I'm going to point to what Paul points to for Timothy. And in case you're wondering, this letter isn't written, you know, in a, in, in, a, in a cozy setting with life going great for Paul. Paul is languishing in a prison cell, alone and lonely. Churches that he's planted have deserted him. Disciples that he's raised up have gone away. He says later on in chapter 1 that all of Asia has left him. Only Luke is with him. A disciple that he's raised up, Demas, has left Paul in love for the world. He says at the end of this letter... Bring the cloak because he can see winter coming and he's cold. I mean, a man of little possessions doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's, he's trusting in Timothy and he points Timothy to something that I want us to look at and I want to point you to. It's the gospel of Jesus that frees us from fear. And the gospel must be guarded in this word called the deposit in chapter 1. The deposit. So what I want to do is pray, and actually I want to read this, then we'll pray, and then get started. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose 
and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's our prayer this morning, Holy Father, that by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that we would guard the good deposit, that we would see the deposit as good. And that we would guard it, and by guarding it, our faith would be turned into a flame and cause us to trust you more, our Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. He calls the deposit good in verse 14. What, what Paul wants Timothy to do is guard the good deposit. This is the same language of the word that he used in verse 20 of the first Timothy, of his first letter. If your Bible opens up the way mine does, you can just actually look at the next page. O Timothy, verse 20 says of chapter 6, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So what is the deposit? What's he pointing to? He's pointing to something that's opposite of the babble of the world. He's pointing to something that he says in verse 13 is described as the pattern of sound words. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Words that Timothy has heard from Paul. Pattern, the sound teaching. Words. Words that contradict and run contrary to the words of the culture. First Timothy's babble language. The philosophy of the world. He says, this runs contrary to that. He says, avoid irreverent babble and do that by guarding the deposit. So what is the deposit? Verse 8, look at this. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So here, we're already looking at something that is unique about this deposit. Something about this teaching tempts you to shame. Tempts Paul to shame, tempts Timothy to shame, the feeling of shame and cowardice. Something about it, something about a crucified Messiah, as we will see, that is a temptation that points to being ashamed. And Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So here we go. The testimony about our Lord gives us a clue of what the deposit is. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel By the power of God. The good news about Jesus. This is the testimony about our Lord. This is the deposit. Guard the good deposit. Guard the testimony about Jesus. There's something about the glories of Jesus that are in the teachings of Jesus. There's something about the glories of Jesus that bring about a life change, as we will see in this letter. That Paul wants Timothy to guard. Protect this. And you don't guard it by, you know, like burying it under the ground. 
and okay, that's guarded. I'm just going to cover it up. That's guarded. That's not how you guard teaching. You guard teaching by entrusting teaching to others, by proclaiming teaching, by teaching it to yourself, by teaching it to others. That's how you guard teaching. That's how it's entrusted on to the next generation. So by way of just a, a really brief outline, let's ask the question, what is the deposit? What has the deposit done? Or what are the contours of the deposit? We know it's the gospel. What are the contours of the deposit? And what has the deposit done in Timothy? That's Paul's strategy for Timothy. And I think it's an adoptable one. You, you, you may not be struggling with the fears that Timothy's struggling with, but you're struggling with some fears. And I think this is an adoptable strategy for us. How do we fight fear? How do we inflame faith? We've got to know what the deposit is, and we've got to know what it's done in our lives. What is the deposit? Verse 9 and verse 10, he kind of runs through some, some pretty, what can be some dense theological concepts, and I want to move through this pretty quick. Verse 9 and 10, he compacts what the gospel is and what he wants Timothy to be reminded of. And I just think it's, I think it's brilliant, and I'm challenged by it, because here, Timothy is a preacher of the gospel in a lost culture of Ephesus. Timothy knows the gospel. Timothy's preaching it all the time. And Paul doesn't assume the gospel with Timothy. He reminds him of, of the contours, of the main message of the gospel. I mean, it's like Paul is just floored by this truth, by the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what Jesus has done and how life is found in Jesus. It's like Paul can't get over it. And the way that he helps Timothy know how to guard it is by guarding it himself, by teaching it again and teaching it again and teaching it again and teaching it again. So verse 9, he starts off with salvation. Jesus has saved us and called us to a holy calling. So the deposit first is salvation in Jesus. Salvation in Jesus. That's why he goes on to say, by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, now... This has been manifested. Salvation in Jesus is now manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, it's little wonder why he's called Savior, why that title is there, because the name Jesus means he will save. That's what the angels announced to the shepherds. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, for he will save. That's what. Jesus means he will save and they fill it out. He will save his people from their sins. So already we're not talking about a a political freedom and a, a political salvation, which is what people were looking for in the Messiah in those days and why they were so confused with the Messiah that ended up on a cross, bloody, naked, bleeding, hanging on nails under the curse, wrath and judgment of God. People don't understand that kind of Messiah. Don't understand that kind of freedom that Jesus sought to bring. He's a savior. He's not a better Tony Robbins. He's not a better Oprah. He's not the best self-fulfillment plan for an already awesome life. My my life is awesome, and, and Jesus makes my life awesomer. My life is already good and great, and Jesus makes it better. You, you, sometimes we hear in, in, in appeals to come to Jesus is that, you know, your, your life is kind of mundane and boring. 
And Jesus is the pathway to adventure. So join up with the adventurous life in Jesus. Now, it's not that there's no truth in that. But before Jesus just rocks our world or takes us to another dimension or gives us a higher life or a whole nother level, before he gives us a holy calling, he saves us. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He saved us. Don't forget that, Timothy. Timothy's like, I know, I know. I'm telling everybody every day. Paul says, I know you know. Don't forget. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us from the curse and the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sins. You and I have turned away from God. God didn't turn away from us. We turned away from God and we slammed the door on the way out. Paul says, Timothy, Christ saved us by standing under the wrath of God for us as a substitutionary atonement that whoever believes in that sacrifice and in that Savior is going to be saved from their sins and then brought into a holy life. And that's what he says the next phrase. He has saved us and he's called us to a holy calling. He's called us into holiness, which oftentimes we just, we reek at the thought of what that means. That means a denial of something. That for, for Christ to call us into holiness, that means that we're going to be denied some, some good things. It's kind of like uh, Tim Chester in his book, uh, You Can Change. He writes this, one of our problems is that we think of holiness as giving up things we enjoy out of a vague sense of obligation. He says, but I'm convinced that holiness is always good news. God calls us to the good life. He is always bigger and better than anything sin offers. So Jesus calls us to the good life by being bigger and being better than everything that we pursue in dead things in this life. So Jesus is better than the praise of man that you might be addicted to today. Jesus is better than drugs. Jesus is better than sleep. Jesus is better than addiction to work. Jesus is better than money and finances. I'm just, he's better than a fixed Nissan. Sintra. The Spirit's saying he's better than that too, Rob. He's better than that. He's better than food. He's better than flirting. He's better than gossip. He's better than a better body. He's better than porn. He's better than entertainment. He's better than house. He's better than fill in the blank. That's what Paul's saying. It's holiness. He's called us into a holy calling. Jesus is better than the fantasy land that the world is pursuing in Pandora. You guys know what I'm talking about, Pandora? Not the internet station, but the, uh, the mythical place of uh, Avatar. I haven't seen Avatar. This is not a recommendation to see Avatar. But the whole world has seen Avatar. And people are getting depressed because Pandora doesn't exist. I mean, really, they're coming out of these 3D experiences and they're experiencing depression because Pandora doesn't exist. They're kind of, I don't know, sleeping in and not going to work and their boss is calling them. And they're saying, I don't know. I'm, I'm upset and depressed because Pandora doesn't exist because people are searching for life and they're searching for community and they're searching for for. For things that are only found in the church in a new race, in a new community of people that have been purchased by Jesus and filled with his love by his spirit. See, Hebrews says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy 
nation. You've been called into a holy calling in the church, in community, filled up with his spirit and filled up with his love. And people are looking for a mythical uh, a place, a mythical reality where those kinds of things exist. And those things exist in the church. That's why we call it the most wonderful place on earth. Maybe it hasn't been the most wonderful place on earth for you, but God wants it to be. So it's salvation in Jesus, it's holiness in Jesus. And look at this also in verse 9. It's eternal grace in Jesus. It's amazing. Look at this. Not because, Timothy, not because of our works. Isn't that great? I mean, Timothy's laboring to say this. I mean, it hardly needs to even be said, right? Well, Paul says it. Timothy, I know you know this, but it's not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. It's eternal grace in Jesus. It's the gift of grace, not something that you can earn or work for. It's not something that you can, uh, it's not an incentive plan. It's a gift of God that's received. And, And Paul says, remember that, Timothy. Don't ever forget, it's not by your works. Because we as Christians and as believers can get caught up in a trap of looking at our good deeds and looking at how we're serving God and begin to rest in those laurels and rest in those pursuits and start to look at that and kind of create a little bit of a monument to kind of lean on that kind of thing. And Paul says, no, 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 stop looking at your works. It's not by works. Remember that, Timothy. And God says that to us today. It's the eternal grace that's found in Jesus. And what's the, the culture struggles with is not just the Jesus that saves us from our evil. I think there, there's lots of people in the culture that would say, yeah, I've, I've done evil things. I've, I've committed, whether or not they'd say I'm an evil person, people would say, I, I've done evil things. Or, I've done some, some bad things. Maybe not a murderer, but I've done some bad things. But what the culture doesn't get is not only does Jesus save us from our bad things, He must save us from our good things. He must save us from our righteousness. That's the the stumbling block of a moralistic culture. I'm relatively good. And Jesus comes to save us from our goodness, which is, is nothing before his holiness. It's the eternal grace in Jesus. And look at verse 10. All of those things, salvation, Calling into a holy life, grace, all in Jesus was before the ages began. In other words, before you were created, before the world was created, all of that was in you, was for you in Christ Jesus. But verse 10 says, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. There's something that Paul wants Timothy to remember. Right now, there's something new that's been on display. All of those things existed in the heart of God, and all of those things existed in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus by faith alone. All those things existed for you, and it's now been manifested by the appearing. What he means by that is by the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the manifestation of Jesus, all those things have have come into visible sight. And he says that when he does this, he abolished death. So it's the 
defeat of death in Jesus. So not only does he, he takes our goodness and he goes to a bloody cross, but on the cross he's actually killing our death by being killed. Death is being defeated. Death is being conquered because Jesus is dying. Jesus dies on the cross to defeat our death. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. He, Jesus, partook of the same things, our flesh and our blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. How is his power? The devil. Who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How does the devil subject people to lifelong slavery? By his accusation over sinners. Your moral platitudes aren't going to make it. And the, there is no hope for you. The accusations of the devil. Enslaved to sin and lifelong slavery. Jesus on the cross destroys the works of the devil and breaks in half his accusations over your life. And Romans 6 says that because of our union with Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin because our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So he breaks the power of the devil two ways, his accusation and his temptation. Look at anything in your life that you've struggled with over the years, and you'll see a pattern of accusation and temptation. Temptation, fall into sin, Accusation from the devil, you're evil, wrong, horrible. Don't go to God. Do not turn to God. Turn back to sin. You sin, temptation, accusation. Temptation, accusation. All those things are defeated by Christ when he dies on the cross. And look look at us in verse 10. Not only does it defeat death, defeats death. It says, By the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So in Jesus' resurrection, he resurrects us. And he abolishes death, but he also brings life and immortality to light. So the light of, of the promise of everlasting life with God all comes to us And resurrection comes to us by the light of his resurrection that we hear in the gospel. As we hear the gospel, we believe in this resurrected one who died for us and rose again for us and brings us new life. And just like 2 Corinthians says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in our hearts and gives us the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why the deposit is so important. Glory shoots out from the deposit. As we proclaim the gospel, glory shoots out. And when glory shoots out like light, it hits our hearts and faith and new life is stirred and faith shoots out back to God. Faith in Jesus alone. How How did faith ever happen? How did you ever have faith in Christ alone? Well, it's because the glory of the gospel hit your dead heart and new life started 
by his spirit and then faith shot out. And that's what happens. And that happens all the time. And it's like you can't contain it in the New Testament. Light just shoots out and shoots here and goes there. And, and, and life is born and new life in Jesus through the gospel. So that's, that's what the deposit is. And here's how we're going to close. What has the deposit done for Timothy? What's the deposit done for Timothy? Because there's something here that, that we can, that can serve us. Well, the deposit that brings life, the gospel that brings life, brought Timothy life. Paul wants to remind Timothy that you were brought to life by this. Don't ever forget this. He says, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears... I long to see you. Now, tears, tears don't always flow from faith. We need to be careful about emotions and, and tears just by themselves and emotions just by themselves. Sometimes they shoot up from faith. Sometimes they shoot up from other places. And, and tears can sometimes just shoot up from guilt. But not in the case of Timothy. Tears shot up from, from faith in Jesus alone. Look, look at this. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Where does joy come from? Joy comes from faith. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Your sincere faith. Paul says, I remember your sincere faith, Timothy. Your sincere faith in Jesus. I remember you clinging to Jesus. I remember you trusting in Jesus. But he connects that with something else he remembers. A faith, a trust, a clinging to Jesus that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois. Hello. And in your mother, Eunice. And now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Give it up for the grandmother, Lois. Give it up for Grandma. Give it up for Eunice. Way to go, Grandma. Way to go, Mama. Way to go. Way to go, Mom. We don't know anything about Eunice, really. We don't know much about Lois and Eunice, but we know that they they got something right. Maybe they blew it on the manners. Maybe they flunked on politeness, but they taught Timothy about Jesus. That's what they did. Maybe they didn't do it perfectly, but the light that hit them and the faith that shot out, they taught to Timothy. And Timothy saw a sincere faith. They saw something that was real. He saw a real, live, genuine faith in Jesus that made a difference. It says in Acts that Paul came to Derby and Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Did you notice the contrast? The mother was a believer, the father was a Greek. So, Dad is blowing it spiritually at home. And Eunice has faith in Jesus. And it says he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. I don't know when that happened. I don't know when he developed the reputation of being well spoken of. Maybe it was at five. But maybe he blew it like at 12 and 13 and 14 and 16 and 18. And then maybe something changed when he was 19. My mother led me to Jesus when I was eight years old. And when I hit the teenage years, I freaked out. 
Like most of you freaked out. And what navigated me back to Jesus at that time at 17 was Jesus. Because at the time, I wasn't pursuing the input from my mom. I wasn't pursuing the input from my dad. I was foolish. And I was rushing after sin. And the cords of love that pulled me back was the gospel and the good news of Jesus. It was remembering the teachings of Jesus. And it was remembering the sincere faith. The real faith. Not the perfect faith, but the sincere faith of my mother and of my father. Way to go, mom. Way to go, moms that don't focus on external morality and manners and neglect the teachings of the gospel of Jesus. Because there are religions and there are gatherings this morning where people gather in the name of manners, in the name of politeness, in the name of their goodness, in the name of their platitudes. And they celebrate that. And that's a black hole. uh, External morality is a black hole that you can never grasp because morality is found in Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. And what Lois and Eunice do right is that they tell Timothy about Jesus. And they tell Timothy about Jesus. Chapter 3 says, from the sacred writings of Jesus. He says, From childhood, you've been acquainted, chapter 3, verse 15 says, with the sacred writings. I mean, Paul can't even take credit for this. Paul says, life happened in you, not primarily through me. I passed on the baton of a calling, but you received life from hearing the gospel from your mother and your grandmother. Lastly, it's given Timothy new responsibility. Look at verse 6, for this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So what Paul wants to what wants Timothy to do in the midst of his fear is to fan into flame. Now, he says the gift of God, but. He doesn't say exactly what that is, leadership preaching. But, but bottom line, it's a gift of faith. Fan into flame faith in Christ. And that's what God tells us to do. The, the, the solution to fear is faith. And faith only comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So what we do by fanning the flame of faith is not by necessarily looking at faith. Not by looking at necessarily the, the, how small and, and glowing or tiny or huge the flame of our heart is, but by looking at Christ, and that's how we guard the deposit, and by looking at Jesus, and looking at His works, and looking at His love, and looking at His goodness, faith rises, and life rises, and the flame of our hearts rise. So he says, fan into flame the gift of God. Question, do you fan into flame the gift of God in your life? Do you settle for a glow where the scriptures would say a flame? Now, I've been to conferences and I've been to the places where the kind of this vague question gets asked, are you on fire for God? So I I don't want to just leave you with some vague thing. But Paul says, 
fan into flame the gift of God. I don't know what that looked like for Timothy, and I don't really know what that looks like for you, but I can at least ask the question, do you fan into flame the gift of God? Is faith in you alive with a burning fire? Or are you settling for a glow? It's glowing. It's got to be glowing. It's got to be glowing for the Spirit to indwell you, which over and over again in this passage, the Holy Spirit indwells us. There's a glow, folks. There's a glow in you. Paul says, fan it into flame. What would happen if you didn't settle personally for the glow and went for the flame? What kind of joy do you think that that would bring your spouse? What kind of acts of love and joy? What about your kids? What about your family? What kind of joy would that bring the friends in your life? What kind of joy would that bring your boss? What kind of joy would that bring to your employers, your employees? What would happen if that kind of impulse took root in our care groups and in our churches over the next year, in our church over the next year, three years, five years, ten years, if, if we took seriously Paul's charge to Timothy to fan faith into a flame, what would happen with our sons and our daughters, the next generation? See, Paul's passing the baton on to Timothy, and we're right now passing the baton on to the next generation. What would happen with our sons and daughters in their respective callings, in their respective vocations, for the lost in our neighborhoods and in our nations? See, today, right now, we, we sit in a land where there is ready access to the gospel, but 3.4 billion people right now have little or no access to the gospel. It's not like we can just all just jump on a plane and go and, and, and fix the Fix the problem. What we got to do is guard the deposit and pass the deposit on and pass the deposit on and teach the, the deposit to our souls and teach it to our children and trust God and look to God to raise up a generation that will bring the gospel to 3.4 billion people and work in, in community with, with other gospel-centered groups to do such a thing. So let me close with this. I want you all to stand as, as, we, as we close this way. And I didn't do this in the first service. It was implied in the text. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. I don't want to imply anything out of verse 12. I read verse 12 and implied it. But I think that's a dangerous place to be because we could hear all of those kinds of things right there, right here, and, and leave here and not do exactly what the text says, which is believe the gospel, look to the gospel. We could actually hear those kinds of things and then, and, then, and then immediately turn around and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm looking to my resolutions. I'm looking to my dedications. I'm looking to my promises. I'm looking to my comparisons. I'm looking at the flame. I'm looking at me. And here's how Paul lives. Look at verse 12. He says, this is why I suffer as I do. This is how I embrace shame, Timothy. This is how I suffer as I do, and I'm not ashamed. How, 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 do, how is he not ashamed? How, how does he have power? He says, for I am convinced, or he says, for I know 
whom I have believed. See what Paul's doing right here in this very passage? He's telling Timothy to guard the deposit and to look to the gospel. And while he's telling him to do that, what's Paul doing? He says, I know whom I have believed. He's trusting in Jesus, even as he writes this. He's resting his full weight on Jesus. Things look really dark in Paul's ministry and in Paul's life, and he's resting in Jesus even now. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, we don't look today at our resolutions. We don't look today at our comparisons. We don't look at our efforts. We ultimately don't. We don't end by just looking at us or our faith in you. And we don't end looking at our failures. But we end doing what Paul did, and that's looking to you, Jesus. Paul knew whom he believed, and that's what we do right now. You are able to guard the deposit. You are able to change our kids. You are able to change us. You are good enough. We are not good enough. You can do what we cannot do, and that's who we look to. Jesus, we declare that you are able. You are able where we are not. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.